0: So today we're looking at uh, our third, our third um, sermon on Ecclesiastes, and we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter nine, and it's it's talking about when life is unfair. So I don't know how many of you have experienced what we call burnout. That's my experience of burnout. That's what I look like. Um, <laughs> It comes, <laughs> yeah. It comes in many forms and has a variety of causes, but usually it happens as a result of rewards not matching effort. Right. So in my case, I suffered what I guess you could call burnout at the end of a long period of effort in our company, Dreamspring. We started developing smartphone apps uh, even before smartphones existed so technically we weren't developing smartphone apps then, but we developed for a PDA platform uh, from a company called Scion, which evolved into the first significant smartphone platform, Symbian, which you've probably never heard of. After after 10 years of developing apps for Symbian, uh, which was Nokia and Sony Ericsson and Motorola, um, the platform was abandoned, We'd come so close on several occasions to breaking through to large-scale sales, but we'd just always like fallen at the last hurdle. And we'd poured so much effort into uh, creative and exciting apps, and, uh, but we'd never achieved that breakthrough. So when we considered whether to seek investment to start afresh on a new platform, I just didn't have the energy. So we decided it was time to move on. So has anyone else experienced this burnout like this sort of thing? Yep. Neil? Yep. <laughs> Finn and Simon. Okay. <laughs> well, you're gonna get a lot more. You're gonna get a lot more. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So does anyone want to share their story about this? Finn? Go on. I studied really hard for a math exam and I didn't get the result that I expected. Yeah. I did that in grade nine and then I didn't study again until I got to uni. <laughs> <laughs> but don't do that. Don't do that. You could, you could afford to do that back then. <laughs> you can't do that nowadays. <laughs> so, anyone else want to share? Yeah? I mean, she was like, like, actually physically burnt me out as well, and I ended up in hospital like three times from it. Wow, so, that's really that serious was like burnout. Was like mental and physical. Yeah. Stuff, yeah, yeah, and often mine was just a mild case of burnout, but that's that's yeah. not yeah. Un, that's not as uncommon as you think. Yeah. yeah, wow. So Solomon was certainly familiar with the idea that life's rewards didn't match the effort put into. So let's see what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And uh, remember that Ecclesiastes is written in the first person. So this is Solomon sharing his life experience. This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favour. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate, Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There's nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living. As they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. In our language, that might be, it's better to be a live cockroach than a dead lion. The living at least know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever else they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, you know, envying, is all gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. So go ahead, eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of that. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is is your reward for all your earthly toil. Whatever you do, do well. For when you go to the grave, there will be no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom. I've observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It's all decided by chance. By being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. So notice how Solomon points out that no one is immune to unfairness. It doesn't matter whether you have physical prowess, intellectual gifts, or moral strength nothing guarantees you success in life in fact with our first company that was successful I recognized at the time that we were in the right place at the right time our second company it wasn't like I suddenly got stupid but we just weren't in the right place at the right time there were some things we could have done better sure but there were things we could have done better in the first company as well but we are in the right place at the right time. What can we do about this? How can we handle this endemic unfairness of life? Now Solomon has several suggestions in Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is the one that Graham told us about last week. There's a season for everything. So we can recognize that the season has changed and we can try to accommodate ourselves to the new season. But as Graham pointed out last week, we have to recognize that we have no control over this. We don't get to say when the season's finished, when it starts, what the next season is. We just have to let God do what God's doing. He's the one who has control over the seasons. The second solution that Solomon suggests is that we can simply put our noses to the grindstone. If our efforts don't yield the expected rewards, we can simply work harder. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. This is the ESV translation, which is a bit more emphatic. And this, of course, is a classic response in Westerners because of the Protestant work ethic. In our society, if, if it doesn't work, if something doesn't work out, you just work harder. But of course, as Solomon points out, more work doesn't guarantee more rewards. So it's like betting double and hoping that you'll win. Third, we can eat, drink and be merry. We can endure the toil and focus on enjoying what it buys us. Or, in Australian terms, work hard and play harder. That's the attitude that so many Australians have, right? But of course, this doesn't always work, we can easily lose everything that we enjoy. And it eventually, even if we don't lose it, eventually these playthings become hollow and they lose their allure and we find ourselves ground down by the toil and not buoyed up by the enjoyment of our leisure. And finally, Solomon suggests that we can give up on the idea of working for a reward and simply do whatever it takes to get ahead, to get what we want. Cheating and stealing, whatever it takes. Just go mad, because you're going to die anyway. Of course, this behaviour just makes it more likely that we're going to die pretty quickly, right? Or maybe end up in jail. So... None of these answers really seem that satisfying. I don't know about you. Did anyone was anyone really gripped by one of these answers? That last one. Sorry. <laughs> Just go mad. <laughs> Just go nuts. I saw the one about the wife. Was, was he being sarcastic? <laughs> I, I read some some elements of sarcasm in there. In the in the in the um in the ESV, which is closer to the Hebrew, it says. Uh, Enjoy the wife of your youth. So you don't get to choose a, a better one as you get older. That's, that's sort of the implication that Solomon has. <laughs> it's like, yeah, enjoy the wife of your youth or you're in trouble, mate. Uh, but is, that, is that youth considered then or is that youth considered now? Because youth then is very different to youth age now. It's, it's the wife of your youth. So that's the wife that you would have been assigned when you were a youth. So your first wife. Because they could they had multiple wives, so yeah. and Solomon had three hundred, so yeah. <clears throat> but that's why he knew that you should enjoy the wife of your youth and not those other ones, because they're just a pain. <laughs> so the interesting thing is that we, we don't we don't actually need to limit ourselves to these solutions because Solomon, remember, is talking about things under the sun materialistic solutions. We don't need to limit ourselves to a materialistic worldview. We don't need to limit ourselves to under the sun. Because as believers in God, we have access to answers from above the sun. Spiritual solutions. In fact, even Solomon's contemporaries had access to this wisdom. As Psalm 49 demonstrates, in Psalm 49, the author addresses the same problems that Solomon saw, but offers a very different solution. He says, I've I've just cut the middle out. You can read the whole psalm yourself. It's a good psalm. Why should I fear when trouble comes when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches. Yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Those who are wise must finally die just like the foolish and senseless leaving all their wealth behind. The grave Is their eternal home where they will stay forever. They may name their estates after themselves, but their fame will not last. They will die just like animals. This is the fate of fools, though they are remembered as being wise. Like sheep they're led to the grave, where death will be their shepherd. In the morning, the godly will rule over them. Their bodies will rot in the grave, far from their grand estates. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of the grave. Now you might notice that the psalmist seems happy to just, just know that God will redeem his life somehow from the grave. Job, in fact, places the same trust in God. He just knows that that somehow in his flesh he will see God. But with our perspective from beyond the New Testament and the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, we can ask, how and why does God redeem my life from the power of the grave? Now, we're all familiar with the explanation that the Apostle Paul gave to the Roman church. He said, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. As we just remembered in Communion. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair. So finally we see some fairness instead of some unfairness. God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. So now we know the reality. God will put everything right after death. The apparent meaningless chance of this material world will be corrected in the next world through the power of jesus so this world might be unfair but the next world will bring everything back into alignment but there's one question remaining one burning question given all this solomon's four solutions to living in a world of unfairness don't work so how then should we live The options, um, how, how can we live when God and the next life is part of the picture? So the Apostle Paul, perhaps the New Testament's equivalent to Solomon, in his incredible theological wisdom, explains in the second letter to the Corinthians, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he's given us the Holy Spirit. So we are always confident. Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident. And we would rather be away from these earthly bodies For then we will be at home with the Lord. So, So whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So our whole lives are to be lived above the sun. The reality of under the sun still tires us. We groan and we, we're we weary. But we know that soon, soon, we will put on our heavenly bodies. When we encounter unfairness, what do we do? We keep our eyes fixed on jesus we aim to please him now i know this is this is a very abstract idea you've heard it before you've read it before it's above the sun thinking can sometimes be a bit hard to understand so i thought an illustration might help cement this idea in our heads So I was a bit inspired by my daughter and uh, I I thought of the way that pilots work. When a pilot first starts flying, they're they're licensed to fly in what's called visual flight rules or VFR. They must only fly in situations where they can see everything around them so that they can maintain an appropriate distance from the terrain and from other aircraft. They use their eyes and a radio to talk to other aircraft. So it's a very simple process. But what happens when they encounter a storm or even just fluffy white clouds, which look so harmless to us, but if you fly into them, you can't see a thing. In fact, You can't even see the horizon, so if you're flying by visual flight rules, it's very easy to become totally disoriented and fly the plane right into the ground, and that happens. Now, if you've flown somewhere, you will have noticed that commercial aircraft actually do fly right through clouds. They don't try and fly around the clouds. They do that all the time, right? They even fly through storms and all this sort of stuff. That's because commercial pilots are licensed to fly in instrument flight rules, or IFR. In IFR, the train pilot scans six main flight instruments and responds to them. An IFR pilot flies by having faith in his instruments rather than his eyes, or her eyes. <clears throat> In a storm, you can imagine how difficult this can become. On top of this, in IFR, the pilot must maintain contact with air traffic control in order to ensure that there are no other aircraft too close by, because you can't see them, of course. So the air traffic control can see them on the radar. And to add a further burden, IFR requires the ability to navigate via radio, radio beacons and airways. Now... Nowadays, you can use GPS to navigate most of the time, but a pilot needs to be able to navigate without GPS because it's not guaranteed to be functioning. (coughs) And uh, pilots, you know, if the GPS isn't working, they can't just pull over the side of the road and ask a (laughs) pedestrian how to get to the closest airport. So (laughs) they need to know how to work without, how to fly without the GPS. Now you might be thinking that IFR sounds a lot more complicated than VFR, and that's because it is. Fortunately, commercial aircraft, and indeed many IFR flights, have an extra pilot along to help share the burden. You might have thought that the co-pilot just sat there waiting for the pilot to drop dead or something, (laughs) but no, they have an important role to play at all times. So how does this illustrate our situation? Think of visual flight rules as Solomon's under-the-sun perspective. It works okay as long as there's no clouds or storms in your life, right? You can sort of sort of see where you're going. But as soon as life storms gather, VFR leaves you grounded or smashed into the ground. Now think of instrument flight rules as our above-the-sun perspective. With IFR, we can fly straight into a cloud or storm and we can be confident that we're going to come out the other side. Now, of course, flying by instruments requires a lot more attention. We need to communicate with God. We need to study his word and pray and and ignore the, the visual circumstances around us all of the storms that we can see around us, we need to ignore that and focus on God's word, like the instruments, and on his, his guidance. So we live, quite literally, by believing, not by seeing. And that's why it helps to have others around sharing the load. I'm co-pilots. But the benefits, of course, to IFR, or to above the sun, life. Are huge. We can fly through the storms of life without fear. We don't need to worry about circumstances. We don't need to worry about chance. We can navigate without focusing on our circumstances, whether they're good or bad. We can fly without limitations. The truth We know the truth and the truth sets us free. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to die for us. Your death and resurrection has set us free from the limitations of this world. We're free to join you in the heavens like a pilot flying on instruments. Except better, of course. Help us to remember And relish our freedom and to encourage one another in keeping our eyes fixed on you rather than on our circumstances. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.